pray together. Father, we pray now and ask that the prayer that we have been praying that your praise might ever be on our lips would be carried forth in our day-to-day experience and not just today but every day and on as we have sung may your praise always be on our lips may our lives always reflect your glory may our hearts always be thankful for your your salvation may our desire always be to abide by your word O god so in all of that as we turn our attention to your word we ask father that you might search our hearts examine us that we might be honest in the examination process listen to the spirit of god today as you teach us from your word and may we make the necessary changes lord to our lives that would reflect a life that is always always has praise on our lips for you i pray in jesus name amen so the question of the day is this was jesus a radical a revolutionary a freedom fighter against the establishment as so many have suggested he was the one thing I think that we learn about this Christian journey is that it is our tendency and temptation to take a quick or cursory look at something that takes place in the scriptures and build a case that will further um, justify the way we really want things to be. And the story of Jesus overturning the tables in the temple is one of those scriptural events that has taken place that has gone off in a variety of directions in terms of its application. Anywhere from Jesus being a total radical and rebel to um, Jesus forbidding the selling of a book in the property, within the property of the church. As I've grown up, I've seen both of these extremes used Uh, and based on the text of Jesus and what he did in the temple in the first century. I've been around long enough to have watched the the Jesus freaks of the late 60s who fashioned themselves after the radical and the rebel Jesus Christ. I remember back in the day when um, I had hair down to my shoulders and I'm, I'm, you're trying to get a picture of that right now. And um, telling my mother, well, Jesus had long hair. I don't know if he did or not. And now a beard. Jesus had a beard, Nick. We know that. So you're good. 
But everybody's kind of hijacked this text for their own case of who Jesus is and how he behaved. That he had a righteous temper tantrum and so can we. Whether you're progressives or reconstructionists or theonomists, somehow Jesus is your go-to example from this particular story. So I think we should look at it and we should ask the question, what is this really about in terms of our life and our heart? Because in some cases, many of us sitting here today in 2023 are saying, look at, that Jesus turned over tables in the temple that now is just ruins in Israel you know, 2,000 years ago, what does that have to do with me right now and my life and the situation and circumstances of my life? And I would say, having studied it, it has everything to do with your circumstances today in your life. So let's look at the text. I'm starting at John chapter 2, and I'm looking at verse 12. It says, after this, meaning after the wedding in Cana, Jesus went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. Now, um, you need to know Capernaum is on the coast of the Sea of Galilee, so whether this was a family outing for a few days of rest and relaxation after the scare at the wedding in Cana or not. We're not sure exactly what this is, but it's mentioned. John mentions it that because he was no doubt part of the entourage at the beach. But it was close to Passover, and it says, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, any of you who know anything about geography know that Capernaum is north of Jerusalem, and when we're, we're describing going south, we usually don't talk about going up. We talk about going down. But whenever you're talking about Jerusalem in the scriptures, you'll find no matter, almost no matter where, wherever they were, they talk about going up because Jerusalem was in a elevated, is in an elevated place in the country. It was always going up to Jerusalem. Plus, it was always a sort of an attitude of this is where we go to meet God. We're going up to Jerusalem. All the song, psalms that speak of, the, they speak of ascending to Jerusalem in the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? <clears throat> His disciples remembered that it was written zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, 
Many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. So this is the word of God. We're going to need to work a little bit on some background to help us to understand exactly what is the violation here, what upset Jesus, how it connects to us. So let me just kind of give you a, a, a bit of a picture of, of what's going on here. Many of us say, okay, so the problem is the money changers, the problem is the, uh, the coins and the, and the animals and all of that. And, and, and we, we need to know that in the worship moment that Jesus was connected to, um, it was a time when people would bring animals, sacrifices to the temple, or if they didn't have, um, if they had to come from a far off place and it was onerous to bring the livestock with you, they would, they had the right to, to bring money and, and to make an exchange, currency exchange. Well, they came from currency from far away, Jews from far away, they would bring it and so they could have, could have a common currency. So as we read through the scripture, we find out that it wasn't that there were money changers connected to the worship system, a religious system was, that was the problem. Deuteronomy 14, 24 to 25 tells us that, that, that it was lawful for them to be there and, and it was a duty to facilitate acceptable offerings. Things had to be ta- changed into temple shekels and um, that they would have change booths there was fine. And of course, people would have to buy sacrifice. They would have to buy animals if they didn't bring something to the sacrifice. But we find some things that are taking place here that have been shifted from their original intention. By the time of Jesus, the temple was anything but a symbol or um, picture of worship to God. By the time that Jesus was around and that Herod's, the second temple that Herod built, there was a segregation that took place in the worship system. You had different courts within the temple. You had the court of the Gentiles, you had the court of women, court of men, and then you had the priests and the Holy of Holies. And it was a kind of a picture of who could approach God and how you could approach God. But it was an incorrect and inaccurate picture of what God had set forth in the scriptures. I don't, I know, I don't have time to take a, a look at it, but in Numbers 15, 14 to 16, and I encourage you to look at these texts, Genesis 12, 3, where, where Abraham was commissioned with being the father of the bless, blessing to the nations. In Numbers, it says there that, that worship, whether they're foreigners or sojourners, should be treated alike. Everyone should, should be treated alike, not segregated and as it was. In fact, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2.14 calls the court of Gentiles the dividing wall of hostility. It was a picture of the, 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 the fact that the Jews were, in, were um, 
at odds with the Gentiles when they were supposed to be a blessing to the nations. There's a hint to this in, uh, in, in Mark's uh, recording of a temple clearing that Jesus did when he talks about Jesus saying, my house will be a house for all the nations. Of course, there was, uh, the temple was to be a place of reverence and connection with God, the place where heaven and earth touch, Habakkuk 2.20. The Lord is in his temple. Let the earth be silent before him. In Micah 1.2, it reminds us that the temple, that, that, that God actually had authority over the temple. The people accepted that. Let the Lord God be witness over you, it says there. There was a time when holy men and women worshipped in the temple, recognizing that the, the, the temple was a symbol of, of the eternal dwelling of God, so it was a, a temporary symbol in the anticipation of Messiah coming to his house with zeal and to bring to consummation redemptive history. And they full well, the... the the temple supervisors, the superintendents, the overseers of the temple knew full well what the prophecy of Malachi said. In Malachi 3, verse 1, See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. They had already questioned John the Baptist and he had declared himself that person. I am one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And then it says, Then suddenly... The Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in the days gone by, as in former years. So I will come near to you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers and adulterers and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive aliens of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. They, they were told uh, with clarity throughout the Old Testament to expect a refining Messiah. Who would come? So by the time Jesus came on the scene, the religion of Yahweh was a mess. Opportunists and their pragmatic sideshow rituals had replaced the worship of God. What had gone wrong? What is going on here? Well, the money changers who were quite entitled to be at, uh, around the, the worship space, the worship region to make currency exchange had moved into the court of the Gentiles. They formally set up their booths outside of the temple. They formally had the livestock across the Kidron Valley. Now they had moved all of it into the temple, in particular, into the court of the Gentiles. Now, when I was, um, when I was younger, back in... Uh, 
public school days and high school days, my uncle had a stalker barn, a stock a cattle sale barn up in Cargill, Ontario, and, and my sister and I would spend March break with them. And, and maybe some of you, the closer you've come to a cow is Sobeys, but, but if, if, you, if you're unfamiliar with the problem of bringing all of these sacrificial animals, cattle and sheep and, and, and doves and everything into the worship area proper, you need to go visit a stalker barn sometime, a sale barn where they sell cattle and sheep and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and to, to just get a, a sense of the aroma of a place like that and, and the flies by the gazillions and the noise and, and uh, the confusion and chaos that's going on. It's, it, I mean, it, to get a picture of it, it's like what was happening there. It's like, it's not like sell, selling a book out in the lobby or a, a pie at a bazaar or a, a, a yard sale for college kids going on a mission trip to Liechtenstein. That's, that's, not what it's, that's not what this is talking about. This is like if we move the stalker barn into the auditorium and you took a peek in the door and it was like, well, like a barn, a mess. Not, there's no room for anything except all of this going on and people selling and buying and exchanging money and all of this. And what's left in the space to connect with God? In reverence and quiet and... They had convenienced themselves by moving the animals from the Kidron Valley into the court of the Gentiles, thereby segregating a whole population of the world from worship. They had made the place of divine connection into a chaotic cacophony of confusion. The place for the nations to pray had become St. Lawrence Market. And we know this is what bothered Jesus because he says here in verse 16, how dare you turn my father's house into a market? A place of business. So let's, let's keep tracking along with our major question that we ask of the text all the time and that is why did John include this in his, this incident in his gospel? And we know that the purpose is always that you might believe that Jesus is Messiah and that by believing you might have what? Life, life in his name. You're going to learn this first by the time we're how many, how many? How far along are you in reading through John? One time through? The Gospel of John? Two times through? Three times? All right, LD. Well, you've got till August, so keep reading. I saw some people who haven't been through even once yet or by your hands not being up, you haven't been through once, you've got to get going. But how does, this, how does this build the case? The simple truth is, the temple was now a site of dying as opposed to a site of bringing life to people. 
It was now filled with animals that were going to be sacrificed, which is part of the system, but it was shutting out worship, shutting out connection with God. It was a dying place, not a living place. Christ has come to bring life. So how's that going to take place? The house of God has now become a house of business. I think it's helpful for us to take a look at carefully at what Jesus says. Get, he says to the dove guys, I, I feel bad for the dove guys because they kind of really got it. Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? I, I want to, I think probably one of the elephant, elephants in the room is the, all the gospels wrote of this event. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And John writes about it as if it occurred at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and Matthew, Mark, Luke write about it as if it happened at the end of Jesus' ministry. Now, are these guys in conflict? Now, a couple of things. I I have told you that I don't believe that John wrote his gospel chronologically. He wrote it thematically. So, that's an important point to understand. But in this particular case, I think John actually did write it chronologically. I think there were actually two events where Jesus cleared the temple. This is the first one at the beginning of his ministry. And the one recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, Matthew, Mark and Luke is at the end of his ministry. And I think the take, big takeaway to all of us about that is, in spite of Jesus' very dramatic event, challenging what they were doing, how they were worshiping God, nothing changed in the three years. And we find out that it didn't change even for years after that, of course. And so this was an event that Jesus first noted, and I wondered to myself as he calls it, get out of my father's house. we heard, we heard him talk like that when he was a boy. Do you remember back in, it's recorded in Luke chapter 2 when Jesus' parents went a day's journey to Nazareth and realized, hey, Jesus isn't with us. Anybody ever lost a kid in a mall or something for a couple of minutes and you freak out? Anybody ever want to lose their kids for a Apparently, Mary and Joseph didn't want to lose Jesus. But when they went back and found him, he said to his parents, didn't you know that I have to be in my father's, I have to be in my father's house? Jesus, the father's house is actually Jesus' house. And so he speaks about, get out of my father's house. You have turned it into a marketplace turned it into a place of business. You've turned worship into commerce. I think most of us have enough connection with what's going on around us to note that, that a lot of Christianity, a lot of churches in Christianity have just become a big business. That they've branding and franchising and Promising things if you'll pay them money. Prayers will be answered if you buy our prayer cloth. All kinds of things like that. 
But I want to I bring this to a, a application directly for us because this is not one that we should be deflecting to, to them or that or those people who do this or those people who do that. This is, a, this is a, an event that should be very applicable to our hearts. The temple is the place where God meets with his people. The temple was the nexus of meeting with people. In fact, Jesus just before, when he's talking to Nathanael, has said, you're, you're going to see greater things than this. You're going to see angels descending and ascending upon the Son of Man, whereby he was interpreting Genesis 28 and the dream that Jacob had about Bethel, the house of God, as the very meeting point of God and man, of heaven and earth. The seriousness of this situation where that place for connection was cluttered with livestock and money changing and all that was going on there was getting in the way of the place of connection with the living God, the place of connection between heaven and earth, the serious place where, where we meet with God. And so it says here that Jesus drives out the sideshow because of his loving zeal for the nexus of heaven and earth, people being able to connect with God. At issue here of prime importance was how people could meet with God. It's very messianic to care about that. That's why the psalmist writes in Psalm 69.9 for Zeal for your house has consumed me or has eaten me up. Why? Because that was the place where people met with God. And now a greater David has arrived, conforming to the will of God for the place of worship where God and man, God and woman can meet and commune and we can worship him and he can speak to us of prime importance. This was not some sort of revolt against a political system. If Jesus was revolting against the political system, he would have gone to Herod's palace. There was plenty of immorality there. But of utmost importance to our God is meeting with us. And we with him and nothing in the way. And meeting with all of us, no matter what nationality we are, all the people, passion of God is to connect with us. And Jesus is the connector, Messiah. And so I think it's, it's highly important for us to take this one phrase and emblazon it in our hearts and our minds today. Get these out of here. Meaning, get anything that is cluttering up our opportunity for connection with God out of our lives. Get these things 
out of here. Get these out of here. And I think the application of this text for us is to ask the question, what might, be, might have slipped into our hearts, safe for convenience or whatever, that is cluttering up our connection with God? What, what is it that has continued to be added to us? What is it? Was it is it concerns about business? Is it, is it about making profit? Is, what's consuming our lives, our position in life? Or, or what, what is it? What sin might have been allowed to climb into your heart out of convenience for you? Because that's why these things came over from the Kidron Valley to plop into the court of the Gentiles. There's a lot of language out there today about um, not having to be worried about all of this kind of stuff or precision about worship or how to worship because God is a God of love. You don't have to get rid of anything. God loves me just the way I am and God loves me with, with however I'm living. Here's how God has loved us. He sent his one and only son into this world to die for our sins, which were keeping us from being connected to God, that we might be in fellowship with God. So to endorse or aid and abet sin in our lives, into our lives, or into the lives of our friends is to be an enemy of God's love, not a friend of God's love. The loving thing that God has done is the very thing Messiah came to do so that we could have a connection with God. And this very representation central in Jerusalem was keep them, keeping people from being connected to God. So, what is in the way of you connecting and communing and concentrating on Christ today? In what ways are you embracing convenience at the expense of real, rich connection with Christ? Let me stare at um, the camera for a few moments because there's been quite a lot of debating going on among pastors and churches about online church. Can I just state that online church isn't for the able-bodied? It's for the aging, the away, the ailing, but not for the able-bodied. Are you letting convenience keep you away from a rich connection with God, worshiping with his people? Or maybe there's something in your life that's crowding out someone else from a clear pathway. Maybe some way you're behaving and just recklessly, carelessly behaving is getting in the way of someone else connecting with Christ.
because you don't care enough. Your heart and your life is like the court of the Gentiles, crowded with animal sacrifices. There's, one, there's a second observation I want to make, and that's, that'll, that'll help uh, uh, wrap it up for today. They ask him, because I think this is the second highlight, then they ask him, they ask Jesus in verse 18, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? For us reading back into this, I mean, this is the, uh, just an outrageous question. They're asking God what authority has over his religion, <laughs> right? So this is, what, what I think we see here is hearts that are so cold, so jaded, so encrusted that, that they don't even challenge the, um, the legitimacy of his complaints about the worship. It would appear as if they freely acknowledge, oh yeah, there's a lot of mess around here. I mean, they didn't challenge him. They didn't say, look at, um, we're doing what we're supposed to do. This is, this is absolutely according to the scriptures because they knew full well it wasn't. Money changers, fleecing the people, sacrifices in the court of Gentiles. The court of Gentiles at all? They, they knew all of that was, was a violation of scripture. They didn't even ask Jesus to, to uh, justify scripturally what they were doing. They asked him, what authority do you think you have? Because we're actually in charge here. <laughs> he answers the question, not in a way they would expect it. He says to them, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. A lot of us have thought he's kind of pointing to himself, destroy this temple and I'll raise it in three days because we find out that, that the disciples realized that he was actually talking about himself. And, and he was talking about the fact that, that the temple he spoke of was his body, that, that Jesus is the temple. The real temple is standing right here in front of you. They, they acknowledge that. But, but he doesn't say, and he doesn't say, I'm going to destroy the temple like they accused him of at the trial. No, no. He says, destroy the temple. You destroy this temple. Because he talks to his disciples later and says to them, this is all coming down. So he knew full well what was going to take place. Destroy this temple, and I'll raise it up in three days. And of course, they think he's talking about the temple, and he really is talking about the temple. He's literally saying to them, you are destroying the temple. God had established a system of worship that was correct and right, and you're just, you are, by your sinfulness, destroying the temple. Make no mistake about it. When we knowingly violate connection with God in gathering, the wrath of God will fall upon us. And God is systematically putting former worship places out of business because they have been destroying themselves. And Jesus says, I'll raise it up in three days. They're like, this has taken 46 years to build. It started in 20 BC, wasn't completed to 66 AD. This is an 86-year building project. Can you all imagine? Like, we would lose it if anything took 86 years to build here. 
and to, and, and to cap it all off, it was finally completed in 66 AD. And those of you who all know history know what happened four years later. What happened four years later? The temple was destroyed. The Romans destroyed the temple. It was put out of business. They destroyed the temple. And God didn't protect it. Listen, Jesus doesn't trash the physical temple. He says it's destroying, you're destroying it. He sacrifices the real temple, his body, for those despicable, irreverent ingrates toward the symbol of God's presence. The Lamb of God was standing in their presence. The anointed one who takes away the sin of the world. He was standing in their very presence. By what authority? You are addressing the very giver of life himself. I have the power and authority to raise up my own life after it's dead. That's the authority. That got the disciples all wound up. It says, then they believed the scripture. What scripture? Well, maybe Psalm 1610, for instance. For you will not abandon my soul to the netherworld, nor will you allow your holy one to undergo uh, decay. Then it says they believed the words that Jesus had spoken after he was raised from the dead. His disciples recalled what he had said. He's the very life giver himself. Standing in your presence. The Passover lamb. The, the, it was the festival of the Passover. The whole point of the Passover was that they had a ceremony to atone for their sin that dated back to their their uh, release, their freedom from Egypt, requiring that, a, that the blood of an unblemished lamb would have to go over the, the, the uh, door frame and, and the angel of death would pass over when he saw that that household, by faith, were trusting in the blood of the lamb. And now the Passover lamb is in their midst bringing to them the final, the fulfillment of the sacrificial system, the very fulfillment of why all those animals improperly were plunked into the court of the Gentiles. The, the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile was going to be taken down by Christ himself. The blood of Christ would be shed. The final sacrifice, by putting trust in him, people would have eternal life. The one who is himself the final sacrifice, making peace with God and man by his blood, is standing in the temple. God has sent the temple to replace a corrupt system. The final sacrifice to, to save condemned people from himself. Salvation is God saving people from himself. His wrath. That's what salvation is, beloved. It is saving people from God to God. And it's unloving to teach anything different than that. So what are you doing with the temple? Because you know that the Bible teaches now that the nexus point of heaven and earth is where? Right here. You and I 
And all who trust in Christ are the temple of the living God. We meet with God in our heart. And we gather together as living stones of the new temple. So what's in your heart? More about marketing, chasing profit than giving praise? More about greed? More about yourself? More about what you can get away with? More about how you can argue with God about tenses in the scripture and various words and what they mean? Is that, is that what's going on in your heart? So that you some, somehow accommodate the convenience of sin in your life and claim that God loves me just the way I am? Is that what's going on in your heart? Then your heart is just like this temple. All cluttered with mess and unable to commune with God. And, and that's, why, that's why people so often no longer even want to connect with God. It's the same thing as I said a while back. You come in here and you notice that this whole place is cluttered with livestock. Smells and the flies and the mess. You like no longer want to even come in here. You leave. That's why some, that's the state of some people's hearts. That's why, that's why you know, you've lost your taste for God. You've lost your desire for his word. You've lost an interest in gathering with God's people and worshiping God and connecting with him. You've lost that. It's grown cold in your life. It's grown cold in your life because you've got clutter there. you've, You've allowed years of crusted, encrusted clutter to happen in your heart. So many people out there placing demands on Christ to demonstrate that he has the authority over their life. Or somehow bribing him to earn their faith. If you answer this miracle, because that's what they said. What, what miraculous sign are you going to show me? And, and you know, that, that said everything to Jesus about their hearts. They, they outed themselves that moment. Because Jesus said that a wicked and adulterous generation demands a sign. Jesus wasn't being a radical or a revolutionary or rebellious. It was time to tap the temple out. It was no longer the place where God met with people. God had come. Jesus was among them. He's the temple. And he's come to live in our hearts. And now we are the temple of the living God. And it's up to us to keep the clutter out of our heart. So do you really still think that you can justify a general rebel kind of relationship and claim it's about Jesus? I don't think from this text, that's for sure. Is it right to protect the poor and the persecuted? Absolutely. Must we speak prophetically against the moral meltdowns of our day? 100%. Are we to be zealous to protect the worship of Christ? Yes, we are. But are we to deconstruct scripture for moral convenience? Absolutely not. Are we to commandeer the secular institutional structures of society? 
I don't think Jesus led that way. So if you're looking for Jesus the radical or Jesus the revolutionary or Jesus the braveheart freedom fighter or Jesus the miracle worker or Jesus the rewriter of the older covenant, a word to the wise. Just look for Jesus. Jesus alone. And do whatever he tells you. And you know what he tells you today? Get those things out of here. Our Father, we pray and thank you for your grace to us, your patience, your mercy, your kindness, O oh Lord. I pray, Father, that we might heed a word to the wise as we encounter your emotion over cluttered worship places, cluttered places that are supposed to be connectors to Christ. It raises up white-hot wrath. And when, we're, when our clutter bleeds out into someone else and interrupts them from connecting, oh, oh Lord, may it not be so. So I pray this morning that we will take your word and allow it to be a mirror on our heart and allow the Holy Spirit to remove the self-deception and start pointing out to us the things that may or are in the way of our connecting un, in an unbridled way with our glorious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. For ask it in Christ's name, amen. The human tragedy of this event is that Jesus came to offer himself to those who questioned him. And right there, they could have repented and received him as the true king, the true connection between man and God. But he came back three years later and found out that nothing had changed. It's just the same as it always was, which is the tragedy of human hearts, is God offers a warning people won't listen in fact we find out that they wouldn't listen and it went on for 40 years after that until the temple is finally completely destroyed there's a lot of people you know who hear a, they go to a weekend conference and their heart gets all stirred up and, or maybe they go to a mass, mass evangelism event and that's how they came to Christ or or somehow they just make a January resolution that yes, I'm going to do something. Or they come to a Sunday service like this and God really fires up their heart. But we look around a year from now or two years from now or ten years from now. And we say, where, where was that person? Where is that? Where are they? And they're no longer around. And beloved, the reason is this. When God calls on you to examine your heart and declutter it because you might be losing connection with the living God. For us to walk out of this place and say, that was a nice story, and an, but it's not really applying to me, is to risk not being here five years from now or 10 years from now because you've wandered away from God. This is serious business. God looks at our hearts. It says in the text, he knew 
the state of man. He knows man. He knows our hearts. He knows exactly what's going on, exactly what's in the way of our connecting with him. So I urge you today to spend some time with the Lord and allow the Holy Spirit to really do some work in your heart about the clutter that might be getting in the way of your rich connection with the living God. That's the point of you being the temple of God. We'll be here at the front. We'll be pastors in the connections room. We'd love to pray with you. If God is doing something in your heart or you want some prayer of some sort. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the challenge of your word. And thank you for the relentless work of the Holy Spirit who changes us. This we ask for in Jesus' name. Amen.